0: Welcome to the Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. On this week's program, Will Salmon from The Athletic will join us. He'll talk about the recent pieces he's written at The Athletic about the Florida Basketball program, one on Kerry Blackshear, one about uh, the state of the program and expectations for next season. Uh, we'll also talk Florida's Big 12 Challenge opponent, and we'll finally get to rule changes. So we hope that uh, you enjoy the show, and we appreciate everybody that's been uh, Dropping ratings on Apple Podcasts, hearts on Spotify. Uh, It really means a lot to us, and the reviews and feedback uh, are very helpful. So thanks for that, and enjoy the show. Our first guest needs no real introduction. He is Will Salmon. He is the Florida writer at The Athletic. I think one of the rising stars in college sports writing. (laughs) Uh, Just a a really good storyteller, and um, we're privileged to, to have him on the show.
1: So thanks, Will. Anytime guys. Um, it's good to be on with you guys. And it's a a little bit strange this time of year because you got some recruiting stuff going on with football and practices opening up. Like you said, but basketball is, looks pretty good right now. And I just got fresh off talking with Mike white, uh, first day of the program series that we've been doing, um, at the athletic. So no better time, I think at least than right now. Yeah, no, that's kind of what, I think that's
0: kind of what, uh, I thought, and I'm sure, you know, I know Eric and I had, had kind of mentioned off the air uh, previously, you know, what a good job you were doing. And I think maybe on the air too, but with, with some of these pieces, but you did do the state of the program piece for the athletic. And and I guess the first question I'll kick it back to Eric is that, you know, it seemed just from reading the piece that, that there is like a palpable level of excitement within the staff.
1: Yeah, no question about it. So I, One of the first questions I asked Mike White was just, hey, like, honestly, (laughs) this has to be pretty much as excited as you've ever been. I mean, obviously, you've been a coach for a pretty long time at this point in your career, and you've had varying levels of talent on your teams. But as far as just collecting pieces together, looking ahead and having some sort of like an optimistic view heading into a season around this time of year, it has to be at the top. And he was pretty candid when he said that it was the top. Like, he's never felt more excited about a team at this time of year than he he does feel right now, which is pretty telling. But in that same breath, he was also quick to say, look, we haven't practiced much yet as a team. We have a long way to go here still. But it's pretty obvious when you look across the country, everybody's recognizing Florida for what they've done in the offseason. The team that they've built. And the roster that Mike White has constructed with his staff. And there's so many strong pieces and tantalizing pieces here that you say to yourself, wow, this is suddenly a top 10 team, maybe even better than that on some polls. So we'll see. Uh, But, yeah, it's pretty undeniable that they feel pretty good about this team. So, uh,
2: I mean, Florida basketball has been like has been a good team these last few years, uh, but hasn't been so good that it's like really commanded the attention of like a Florida football fan who's maybe waiting to see if Florida could be like a top 15, a top 10 team to really pay attention. So so, Will, for you who like lives mostly in the football world, do you see a little bit of a different kind of temperament of Florida football fans that maybe aren't basketball fans like do you see them? Um, kind of recognizing what's going on here and saying like, hey, maybe I need to tune into basketball.
1: Yeah, no question. I think you you sort of nailed it right there. That's a big part of it because, you know, you, you see different levels of interest in basketball from, you know, different teams in the SEC. Certainly you have Kentucky there, at number one. That, that's kind of like a, an obvious one to point out. But after that, you have the, very, the varying levels of interest. And the team has to be good for a lot of these schools to really care a whole lot about the program um, from a sort of like year-round view. Now, during the season, a lot of people are going to tune in and watch the games and all that. But as far as paying attention to how the team is constructed, what it looks like, how things are looking ahead of the season before the season even starts, yeah, Florida is one of those teams where it's sort of hit or miss. Um, You know, when they're really good, people care. When they're sort of... It kind of like, I don't want to say 500, but like around, I don't know, and I don't want to say mediocre or anything like that because it's usually a pretty strong team. But when it's sort of like that uh, vanilla sort of, okay, this is just another season type of deal where, you know, maybe if, if everything goes right, there could be some sort of a deep run, maybe um, sweet 16 to the, in the tournament or at least the first couple of rounds. But here, you know, you have a, a totally different story where this, is, this has the potential to be a Final Four team. And people recognize that early. Everybody knows those type of contenders early. So for a school like Florida, with a fan base that, that loves football first, foremost, and uh, probably second, third, fourth, and fifth too, for that matter, yeah, it takes a whole lot to kind of get basketball into the conversation in July. But yeah, I mean, I would not be—I I don't I probably wouldn't be writing about basketball if this team wasn't good, um, and if it wasn't—if it wasn't at the level that I'm describing it as as a potential Final Four at least top 10 heading into the season
2: so kind of going uh going back to like expectations for this team um something that you uh kind of alluded to or i should say i guess mike white alluded to uh was just that like hey we uh we haven't practiced much and we'll see and like i think a lot of that has to come with the fact that uh there are a lot of new faces on the roster this year and there was major major turnover so um how do you feel that um Uh, how concerned do you think coach white is about building chemistry? If he kind of alluded to that at all. And maybe like, what are your personal thoughts on uh, what you think the chemistry will be like, just given that you don't often see turnover like this in college basketball.
1: You don't, you really don't. And it's going to be, it's going to be something that we won't know until we see it. And we really won't know until, maybe a couple of weeks into the season after the, after they get past um, some easier non-conference games and they get some more legitimate tests down the road. So that's when we'll really see it sort of formulate one way or the other. But just my own personal opinion, you add guys like Blackshear and Scotty Lewis, those guys have never really had any negative words said about them as far as their character, as far as – their basketball IQs, how they handle themselves, how they relate to teammates, all of that stuff has been top notch for both of those dudes. And those are your first two guys that come to mind when you, when you talk about these new pieces. The other part of that, though, is that they're not the only new pieces. There are several, several others that you're adding to the fold uh, for this team. And a lot of those guys, yeah, maybe they're not Scotty Lewis or or Blackshear, but they've been the number one or the number two option on their teams in the past. And with this Florida team, they're not going to be anymore. And so there has to be some sort of level of recognition that there has to be some sacrificing. There has to be some team first uh, mentality that has to be bought in. But again, you add those type of guys, those high character guys to a group that also includes uh, folks like Andrew Nemard, who... Again, another guy who is pretty unselfish, that's really been his MO. Everybody knows him for being that type of guy, puts the team first. And if that's sort of who your leaders are, your locker room shouldn't really be that much of a concern. But that's easy for me to say because I'm not the coach of the team. So <laughs> as far as Mike White's concerned, that is a legitimate thing that he has to be aware, about, uh, aware of and cognizant of because he's the one divvying up the minutes he's the one that is going to put guys in specific roles to start, hope they live up to, the, to those roles, fulfill them the way he thinks that they will, and we'll see how it plays out from there because certainly only five guys are going to be on the floor. Um, you know, Only a few guys are going to be your main scoring option. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of things that has to be decided um, that will be tested, but I don't know how much of a concern it is for people like you and me just because we look at this team and we say wow all the talent is there plus you have some good uh locker room character to boot
0: the um you know that's one of the one of the things you said that's interesting i think is like we won't know till we see it and like there is this early tournament in charleston that i'm sure that they're looking at is kind of this chance to to bond and, and come together as a group. But when you talk to to Andrew Nimhardt, who I know told coach white, he would, you know, he wanted to take on a bigger leadership role. I mean, did you get a sense? Cause the thing about college basketball that often gets lost when people talk about a team being young, is that like, you're not particularly young when you started three freshmen the year before, like those sophomores aren't really that young. Um, even though like they are age wise. I mean, did you get that kind of sense that he's, you know, that he's aware that he has to kind of take on that role for a program that lost a bunch of seniors.
1: Yeah, no question. Yeah, certainly. That's a great point that you make because, yeah, your best teams are always going to be pretty young. And basketball, within about a month or so, or two months into the season, you're really not that young anymore, anyway. Midway through the season, your freshmen, the, the kids like Scotty Lewis, who are pretty much known as one and done kids that's not that's not that much of a concern. And so it's really just getting the pieces to kind of fit and having guys sort of buy in and understand what needs to be done. And I don't think there's too many guys that you'd rather have other than Andrew because he's somebody who plays both ways pretty hard. He, he understands the defense. He understands what it takes to play hard defensively. And he's somebody that people are very comfortable asking questions to as well. You know, maybe they don't need to – you know, relearn the game of basketball, but they have to learn uh, certain calls and and certain plays that only Florida knows or only Florida uses. And so that terminology, the way they do things, for lack of a better way to put it, that's somebody. That's something that Nard could really sort of uh, communicate and and be that sort of um, uh, communication barrier between the coaching staff and the, the especially the newcomers, but really the whole team and sort of and sort of relaying that message of what they want to come across. And he's a great fit. I mean, people respect him. Um, He has some things that he can improve upon in his game, but I would say he's probably, he's one of the best point guards, at least in the conference, um, if not more than that. And so he's somebody that people respect on and off the court. And he, he's the guy. I mean, he, people who joined this team joined it in part because he's part of it.
2: So I, I think uh, just kind of some of the guys we've talked with, obviously, uh, and for good reason, are, are Kerry Blackshear and Scotty Lewis and Andrew Nemhart, who are uh, going to be really good players. But is there anyone that you kind of caught wind of when talking to, to White or the coaching staff, like maybe one of the uh, the less heralded recruits or one of the kind of bench returners? Was there anyone that, uh, that Coach White seemed to be like sneakily excited for or someone maybe a little bit um, off the radar that, uh, that they seem to uh, be expecting?
1: Yeah, in, in some ways, I think uh, Glover, the, the point guard out of Knoxville that they signed, I mean, he wasn't a five-star, he's not a five-star kid. I, heck, I don't even think he's a four-star kid off the top of my head. I think he's <laughs> like a, a three, four in the composite or, or, or something like that. But point is, is that he's really not that well-known. He's not exactly the the, the name of uh, Mann or Lewis or Payne for that matter. But, you know, 5'11", I think is about 170, 175 pounds kind of lacks lacks size, but he has a lot of speed, and I think defensively against small I mean, he, he could really fulfill a role if they choose to, to play him this year. They don't really necessarily need to because of their improved depth. It's not like last year where they're kind of relying on basically seven guys anymore. They have they have guys. Um, that's why you saw the ability, as you guys know, to, to sign a guy like Appleby um, who won't even be eligible until next year, but Going back to Glover, I mean, he's a guy who I was told by a couple of people um, on staff, uh, coaches, that is that he, you know, he's he's probably an underrated recruit. But I think it was uh, Darius Nichols who told me that he was one of the better shooters on the entire team, and that's saying a lot um, when you look at this roster. So that's a guy that comes to mind um, when I hear that question asked. But I'm also pretty high on Johnson. I think he's a guy that goes under the radar a lot, but. Man, I just like the way he plays. He he just—I I love his energy. I love his athleticism. Um, he makes those hustle plays that tend to lead to, you know, second chance opportunities. And and you need that. And you need his flexibility too, because that allows you to do some different things with with the lineup.
2: Yeah, this is a this is a pro Keontae Johnson podcast for <laughs> sure.
1: Um, nice. And uh, yeah, that's, I, that's I, the only I, podcast. That's the only way to be on a podcast. Well, and <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I love I guys. I think I mean, I played... great.
2: I claimed mid-year last season that I thought he was going to be uh, two-and-done, which at the time was, like, maybe a little, uh, little hot takey. But, is, you know, <laughs> I, I, we'll I will see what happens. But, uh, yeah, the other thing, too, Will, just uh, uh, regarding Quez Glover and for those maybe listeners who are just tuning in for the first time. I, I mean, like, so Glover was unrated um, at the time that Florida offered him and committed, and then he <laughs> jumped onto 24-7 as a two-star. Because um, I, I think Florida was his first high-major offer. And, uh, and then now he's up to 401st uh, as a low three-star in, uh, in the 24-7. So uh, definitely a little bit off the, uh, off the path there. And I know, I know Will,
0: like, is, is really – you can tell from his writing because I, I think he told me at the Peach Bowl. But he, he, I know you like recruiting a lot. And basketball recruiting is such a more in-its-act science right now than football recruiting. And, and so, I mean, Key Clark started the national championship game for Virginia. And made the key pass to win them a game in the elite eight, and was basically a two star rated by one service going to UC Santa Barbara last February or <laughs> but the, the February before last, so it kind of tells you how quickly you can go from no one really
1: knows who you are to starting the national title game. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, it it kind of puts like the onus on assistant coaches and head coaches for that matter to get out there and take that grassroots sort of um, approach to things. And that's something that I also talked to the staff about was their ability to kind of do that, which helped them in the beginning when they first got to Florida, it seems. And now that they're able to land the class like they did this, this past cycle or this past year, um, that's something that, I, that I'm kind of curious um, to hear what you guys think about that and just also their ability to kind of, like, where do they go from here um, with it? Because I think that's kind of interesting, too, when you think about Florida basketball is, okay, they signed this big-time class, but it's really the first time that they're getting these type of kids with, with Mike White um, as far as, like, a, a Scotty Lewis type. And so that's what I'm kind of curious about finding out this this upcoming year. And the year after that, because they're in a different situation now where they also have to recruit guys and kind of tell them, hey, we have like a one and done, we think, but we don't really know. So it kind of puts them in a curious position where, you know, maybe they they don't exactly know how many spots they even have at this point. Um, And it kind of I don't know, it just makes it for an interesting approach heading into heading into uh, recruiting this year.
2: Yeah. Yes. Go ahead, Eric. Oh, well, no, I was just going to mention, it's, uh, it is interesting to see them obviously going after um, transfers that sit after, you know, they had some grad transfer success these last uh, few years with Canyon Barry and, and Kulchov. But um, just to see that, uh, yeah, to get some sit out transfers, I think is, is pretty major. And I also think it is good that they're, um, I, I think that so often too, uh, young coaches are, are coaches that are new to the high major level. Um, they want to like, you know, they want to chase stars and for, and for good reason, it's, it sounds good to your fan base and everything when you get four and five star guys and, and highly rated recruits. But I think the fact that they were able to go get, um, or kind of confident enough to go, um, offer an unrated five foot 11 point guard late in the cycle and, uh, and not worry about fans being like, Oh, like, what are they doing? Because there is a lot of trust in what they're doing. And it's just interesting to see once again, how quickly this went to like, uh, it went from like oh Florida's offering this like unranked undersized point guard to um hey, this guy might be contributing as a freshman and uh, and might play a big role, so I find that pretty interesting. It was almost an aside I put in a Saturday
0: down south article I wrote on Black Shear, but I felt like it was worth staying you know stating that I felt like the twenty twenty class is kind of uh is pivotal for for this staff, regardless of what happens, so I'm kind of glad will brought that up because. Florida's, you know, Florida. Florida's formula under Billy Donovan certainly was get old and be old and good. Um, and and it was not like you know, I mean, the the famous class, the O fours, they, they were all pretty highly touted to players with the exception of Joe Kim Noah, but um, who was a guy that they just sort of found and and you know thought, oh well, he seems better than a three star us, and they were right. Um, but you know, Horford, tony Green, like all those guys were were highly touted players, as was the class that went to the last class for, that Florida had that went to the Final Four, Scotty Wilbekin and and that group. But Will, you get was really the only quote-unquote flyer that they took and it worked out pretty well. Um, but they do, I mean, their board is more of that ilk in 2020, Will. It's more of a get old, these are probably three- or four-year players. I mean, like even P.J. Hall, who I think right now, has a potential to be either the best or second best player they signed um is probably a three or four-year player even though he's a high four-star
2: which is definitely i think part of the reason why he has been like a priority for them because i mean i would take three three years of pj hall over honestly over one year of and that's someone and right. done yeah and uh I obviously try to blend those is uh, a bit of a uh, a bit of the science, but I also feel like, again, bringing in the sit-down transfers, like, you know, Florida's going to lose a lot of talent this year, but then you've got Tyree Appleby and Daruji and coming in as, uh, you know, fourth-year juniors that are going to b- bring instant production. So I think that that'll be uh, kind of an interesting mix if Florida keeps recruiting it the way they do, and it's a little bit of, like, hey, we've got high four and five-star young players, and then we've got, like, the rest of the roster is, like, you know, mid-major all-stars that are kind of getting their <laughs> chance. I, I,
1: I'd, I'd be pretty into it. Yeah, it's a great point that you make with with the transfers, too, because you see that with a a, a few teams in the conference that I've noticed is it's kind of like that backstop sort of like provision where it's like, yeah, you know, the talent that you have this year. But if you can convince a guy who is maybe at, uh, you know, one one of those big major programs to kind of join you instead after after seeing them maybe develop or uh, become a better player than at least they were in high school after a couple of years and take that year of eligibility left, or uh, two years for that matter, by sitting out a year, that's huge. I mean, it kind of allows you some flexibility and allows you to maybe take some chances, too, in recruiting. Maybe they pay off, maybe they don't, but it at least affords you that sort of uh, margin for error uh, to be able to operate that way. So
0: you wrote the uh, what I thought was a great piece on, on Blackshear and his decision to go to Florida, uh and you know one takeaway i had that i didn't really know about him um was that it sounds like he's kind of quiet and cerebral and like to some extent maybe that's why what was on the exterior kind of a circus surrounding his recruiting was really like not what it was made to be it was an interesting kind of case study in in how social media affects recruiting i thought
1: yeah, it really was fascinating to me because I didn't know the kid. I mean, <laughs> some kid from Virginia. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I knew he was from from Florida to begin with, but I didn't really know him. I mean, I never never interviewed the kid before. It's kind of funny. Like I just sort of, I knew that he didn't do any interviews like during the process, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or at least not maybe after the, he may have done maybe one or a couple like initially, uh, maybe he did maybe he didn't. Uh, but I don't recall seeing anything once things got super interesting. And the rumors were circulating of, you know, maybe he'll be in Tennessee or, you know, watch out for AM and and Kentucky is there. Um, meanwhile, Florida was Florida seemed was, like, out, right? was always the fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, like, I kind of just like randomly hit him up one day because I was on vacation when he, uh, when he committed, funny enough. And so I kind of <laughs> like missed out and I was like, you know what, I'm going to circle back and just see, you know, I have the kid's number. Um, took me a while to get it, but I was like, all right, you know, I'll just hit him up. A couple of days passed, and he's like, hey, sorry, Uh, but he couldn't be nicer about it. He was like, hey, you know, I'm really sorry that I just saw this. My phone's been, like, flooded with messages, but I'd be happy to talk with you if you still want to talk. So I was like, all right, sure. Um, Didn't really know what to expect, but I did want to ask him about just why things were the way they were with his recruitment. And he kind of brought up something interesting that I think was sort of a testament to his personality, which was halfway through the conversation, he kind of caught himself, maybe it was in the middle of a – Question that I had that he was answering, but he was like, you know, maybe maybe I handled it wrong, maybe maybe I should have been a little bit more out in front of it. That way, people didn't speculate because there was a lot of misinformation out there. And for a guy to say that, I thought took a lot of maturity uh, to kind of reflect and be a little bit introspective and and say to himself, you know, maybe 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 there was a better way to do it because there was a lot of misinformation. But at the same time, I think I told I was the one who brought it up to him just based off this conversation. I'm like, well, it doesn't really sound like that would be in your personality, though, either, though, to kind of do that. And he's like, yeah, it really isn't. And that's probably why I didn't. But just sort of like some food for thought to kind of consider, like, just the level of you mentioned the word cerebral. And that's the way that I would describe him, because that, that's not something that you really find too often. Um, he's, he's pretty well read. He's a smart guy, really bright and he can play. <laughs> and He can play really well, and he knows the game, and he's a guy who I think people are going to be um, thrilled to see because he, obviously, on the floor fulfills something that Florida hasn't had in a while, but off the, off the floor, though, I mean, he's he just, he's just he's a good guy to talk to. I mean, he knows the game really well, so he brings those intangibles with him, and he, he knows what's at stake for him, too, and I thought that was sort of um, it kind of goes without saying that he has that one year left, but he seriously wanted to go somewhere where he was going to not only boost himself, but also be part of something that he was comfortable with because otherwise he wouldn't have joined. If he didn't think it was the perfect situation for him, for what he wanted to do, he wouldn't be part of it. So part of that was, it could be looked at as a little bit selfish, but you have to sort of be that way when you're, when you're choosing your final destination, because you only have that one year left. So Obviously, you're gonna. There's gonna be some la- layer of that, but the the part of that though is is that Florida was that option for him, and it is that destination. So, yeah, a, lo- a lot of good things about him, and it was it was really fun to talk with him.
2: Yeah, I think it is interesting talking about just what he wanted to do with his last year. Just uh, even going back to it before, and we were talking about. Uh about recruiting and, and even just the factors that went into him ultimately deciding to want to transfer to Florida is just that like, you know, obviously he was a a high major guy. He went to Virginia tech, but it wasn't like he was a super highly sought after guy um, by the blue bloods or anything. And he was, you know, a three-star guy who went to Virginia tech who uh, at the time he committed was not a a team with a lot of um, kind of basketball pedigree in that league. So uh, for them to even be quite good last year, and then for him to now have uh, obviously the chance to, to hopefully compete for a final four um, or, uh, or better um, that, yeah, it was just a really interesting look at like his, his kind of character and also just to see like the journey he's been on. But um, yeah, I, I was just going to, you kind of hinted at it as well, saying it at, at, at the end, but just kind of talking about the, uh, the misinformation that did go on around his recruitment. Um, once he, once you were talking to him, was it, did, did he make it kind of clear what uh, kind of his motivations really were? Because it sounds like, you know, from a lot of the misinformation that was out there um, kind of his motivations and his decision was, uh, was, that was a big part of the misinformation. So did you, uh, did you kind of gather that it was like the chance to compete or the chance to be close to home or, or anything like that that really was like uh, the number one priority for him?
1: I think Florida always had some sort of an edge just because it was Florida and it was, it was in his backyard, his hometown. So I think that was always going to be part of the conversation or at least the lead part of the conversation for him. And as long as it checked the other boxes for him, it was going to win out. But he's the type of guy and his family has been through recruiting now what a couple of times at least um, with with his parents, you know, just coming from an athletic background as well. Um, I think his dad was a former player, too, so. Yeah, I mean, they, they know what they're doing as a family. They're a high level of knowledge when it comes to basketball recruiting and um, just college athletics, and they don't they know how it works. Simply put, so I think that they were just trying to find out is this is this not only the school that is obviously close to home and it is an SEC school, but does it also check the other boxes as well? And so, kind of a cool thing that he brought up was the fact of how similar. He thought the the nucleus of talent was to sort of uh, Virginia Tech, um, not maybe in a level of talent, but just who the pieces were and how he was able to kind of connect with them, just with some phone conversations here and there with um, certain players like Andrew Nemard or Scotty Lewis, and how they sort of vibed and connected together. That mattered a lot, and clearly, just the the depth chart um, goes without saying. It's pretty obvious <laughs> that that he <laughs> that he's. Uh, the guy and only guy, and there's not much competition at all for that spot. Um, and he was a significant need there. So yeah, I I don't think it could have, um, could have been any better as as far as fit goes. And it was one of those things where, like I said, it was always going to be at the top and it was just, he was that type of guy, that type of kid with that type of family that they're going to make sure. And that entailed going to other schools and just seeing for themselves, um, you know one way or the other that this this was the right decision one of the uh the
0: things that you know i at least i've noticed in the last year and i it, this it's an interesting question to pose to you i think because um you know your coverage of of mississippi state before uh florida is that scott strickland has kind of vocally been supportive in a way that you sometimes don't really see from an athletic director of of Mike White and this staff. And like just the idea that, you know, if you went into the basketball building and asked them, hey, was last year <laughs> really what you wanted? And I think they'd say, well, we're happy that we maxed out in the second round, but we really do feel like we kind of maxed out because a lot of things didn't go the way we wanted to go. I guess the question I have about Strickland is is sort of, uh you know he he did make it a point of emphasis. something that you think is has to be a priority to him it's part of his job description but do you think maybe he was a little more vocal because he's pleased with where the staff is or you know what do you think kind of went into that if you have any idea
1: yeah, I think that's a great, a great question with Scott Strickland. I think what I always, I'm I'm in the same camp as you. I always respect um, how savvy he is when it comes to sort of media and fan interaction. That's his background. And it shows he gets out in front of a lot of things and he's not somebody who operates with his head in the sand. I mean, he knows what fans are saying and he knows what's on their minds and he cares. He cares, to, he cares enough to actually go out and ask about it, too. And does that change his opinion? No. Um, he has his own opinion, and he's been around long enough to understand what's going to work and what's not. Um, and he keeps a level head, too. And that's another thing I like about Scott is he, he's pretty pragmatic in that way. But um, he, he, he keeps his head to the ground, and, and he understands that uh, perception – Uh, matters in some way but it's not going to influence how he operates or how he thinks and so i think that uh, he respects mike white a lot and the the job that he's doing and if um and if he didn't think it was a good enough job he would have he would have made a change um and that's not something that i foresee happening (laughs) clearly (laughs) and i don't think it should uh because i think mike white is an excellent coach and i think he is good at what he does and, and Scott Strickland recognizes that. And so I'm not really surprised that um, if he is asked about Mike White or if he's asked about Dan Mullen, for that matter, um, or really any of his coaches, he's going to give you his thoughts on it. Um, and he's smart and sophisticated enough to, um, okay, he'll be cautious with what he says. If maybe if it's not the right situation or if things are trending uh, poorly. But if it's going the way uh, he, he wants it to or the way that he envisions it should, he's going to let you know. So I don't think it takes too much one way or the other to really understand what Scott Tricklin is, um, is, is thinking or or what his next moves may be.
2: What you got, Eric? <laughs> uh, sorry, I took... Uh, a, I got a couple phone calls during that answer and kind of missed out <laughs> on it. That's amazing. It just it cut out of the app for like a minute, so I missed a little bit. Other than some uh, some great thoughts on Strickland's thoughts of uh, <laughs> White, but uh, my transition has failed here.
0: No, it's okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I can ask a kind of closing question in, in that sense. Then with uh, with Will, and thanks again for for your time. Um, I know I know it's a busy time for you. Uh, in, in you know, I guess the ten thousand feet kind of bird's eye view of the program is that that expectations are i mean you've seen you know people like you said at the beginning people are talking about florida basketball on twitter in july so uh they're they're kind of outrageous did you i mean did you get the sense that it seems like the staff's embracing that challenge um but also kind of like like you said at the beginning they also know hey you know like we we just like practiced once
1: Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's misplaced at all. Um, I really don't. If you, I mean, who else beyond Kentucky do you throw in there right. with them um, in that top tier? If you know, maybe you want to put, maybe you still want to put Kentucky in its in a class of its own. That's fine. But who do you put right below it besides Florida? Maybe Auburn, LSU. Uh, but man, I, I pick Florida. I look at Florida's starting five plus. I guess man as, as the sixth guy yeah. and, and look at their depth. And I say, yeah, they, they, they belong. Why not? I mean, just because the pieces are kind of new. I mean, a lot of your good teams do that in basketball and they have to make it work. It's a challenge. Sure. But that's where, that's what that's what happens in the sport. And so I think it's definitely not misplaced at all. Um, we'll see if it's going to amount to that, but yeah, I mean, I, I I used to cover Mississippi Mississippi State like you mentioned, and they're a school that that seriously seriously cares about all the sports at a high level, where football doesn't really stand out that much. I care about baseball, I care about basketball. When I moved and I started covering Florida Florida, I noticed the difference right away. And last year around this time when I first moved, I didn't see Mike White's name on my timeline for a very long time. And 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 now this this summer. I don't go to too often without seeing it. And so that kind of just tells you um, where Florida basketball is at heading into this season.
2: So, Will, this is a, this is a loaded question given the, uh, the format here on the podcast, but uh, you know, I am no football expert. Um, I'm definitely a basketball guy, though. I learned lots from reading your stuff, uh, but I know Florida football is going to be good this year. So uh, my question to you is who has a better season, Florida football or Florida basketball? Oh.
1: <laughs> that's a great question, man. Oh. That that's probably like the best question I've gotten in a long time, as loaded as it may be. Um you can that's, be honest that's here. awesome. I'm sure yeah, I'm sure most folks are football team. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go basketball. Right on. I'm I'm, I'm going to go basketball. I think that Florida football um it will have a good season, but it's not really I don't see it surpassing expectations in the way that Florida basketball has the has the ability and opportunity to. Well, you heard it here, folks. You heard it
0: here, and I I can't say anything about it because they'll just I, I'll just get Twitter assassinated. So I'm gonna I'll punt on even chiming in on that. Uh, oh,
1: I'll, I'll take the hits for now. That's fine.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll let Will I'll let Will take the hits. We'll, we'll try. I'd like to get Will back at some point um, closer to the season. We can talk about the Looney College Basketball recruiting calendar changes that they've made and stuff. I know a lot of people are mad about that, but I, to our listeners and to, to Will, who I know likes recruiting, the Frank Martin interview with Andy Katz is, is marvelous on that question. But, uh, Will, thank you for your, uh,
1: for your time. Oh, anytime, guys. I really enjoyed it. You guys do an excellent job, and there's no better way to get basketball, no- basketball knowledge on Florida than through you guys. So I appreciate the time that you guys gave me. Appreciate it, man. Take care.
0: Our second segment today will be a discussion of the SEC Big 12 Challenge matchup with Baylor. And uh, we'll also talk rule changes, how that might actually affect Florida a little bit, and in particular the way they they like to defend. So thanks for listening. Show. The first is uh, the SEC Big 12 Challenge is set with Florida hosting Baylor for the second time in three years. I thought a little odd that Florida didn't get Kansas or Texas Tech, which I know was discussed, but – They ultimately decide that uh, Kentucky gets the marquee game with Texas Tech and Tennessee gets Kansas, leaving the Gators with uh, Baylor, which I think is actually going to be a fantastic game. But, um, you know, if you wanted to see somebody different in Gainesville, you lost on that end, I
2: guess. Yeah, I I feel bad because it is a game that people probably – well, just wouldn't get as excited for as they would if it were definitely Kansas and and probably even Texas Tech. But, I mean, Baylor's going to be really good. So uh, it's going to be a really good – it's going to be a tough game and a really good win opportunity. Um, I think they're top 25 for sure. So um, that'll be something to kind of uh, – yeah, that'll be a top 25 opponent, I think, at that point in the season. They are, um, you know, a team that made the NCAA tournament um, as a nine seed, but they bring pretty much everyone back. I mean, the only one they lost, uh, it was a guard in Makai Mason. Um, he a decent player, but, um, not a crushing loss, but they, uh, yeah, they bring pretty much everyone back and, uh, they're, yeah, they play great defense. Um, they're better offensively than you think. And, uh, one matchup that I'm just like really excited for is, uh, Mark Vital versus, uh, Keontae Johnson. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Cause Mark <laughs> Vital is built exactly like Keontae Johnson. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to look this up. Um, but if anyone remembers, um, there's a game this year where, um, where they played, uh, where Baylor played Arizona. Okay, here we go. So that was a game where, um, uh, where Arizona only had uh, 19 rebounds as a team, and Mark Vital on his own had 17,
1: and he had
2: uh, <laughs> he had nine offensive rebounds. And I was watching that game because I tuned in at half. Because at half, like Arizona had single digit rebounds, and it was like crazy. So for like three quarters of this game, Mark Vital at six foot five was out rebounding the entire Arizona squad. So uh so yeah, point being he's a he's a physical kind of undersized four, just like Keontae Johnson, and uh that's a matchup I'm looking forward to.
0: Yeah, I'm also looking forward to uh just Andrew Nimhard and versus their zone. Mm. Um because you know, Florida was able to kind of rattle it two years ago because Chris Chiozo was so quick that he could like get in the middle of it and then distribute safely. But the other thing that happened in that game uh is that Jalen Hudson was hitting like the like low percentage step back jump three point jump shots like the whole first half. And so Florida built a pretty comfortable lead um, because they made a ton of shots and, you know, maybe Florida playing at home again, makes a ton of shots, but uh, you know, Baylor traditionally very good defensively in, in their zone defense. And so kind of a good March test, like a second round sweet 16 type test for Nimhart. I think that's,
2: that's going to be really useful in late January yeah seeing that zone is definitely going to be good experience because it's uh it's kind of unlike what you see from a, from a lot of teams it's tough to prepare for and uh yeah it's it's kind of interesting because uh when you look at baylor's numbers i feel like they never look as good as like you know like, i guess the eye test i mean you watch them play and that defense is is tough to play against um i feel like it's a little bit of a knuckleball at times like some days <laughs> like that zone is knuckling and just like you cannot get a sh- single shot against it and then um other times you just like find find soft spots of it and can hit some shots but yeah like if florida's not hitting shots it could be a it could be a tough one so i i would just um uh, for anyone who is maybe not super excited about this matchup um yeah i would just say like baylor's gonna be a top 25 team i believe um when florida plays them so anytime you can kind of get a top 25 team even though when it's not as as uh, as sexy of an opponent as as kansas i mean
0: it's still pretty cool yeah no i i would uh I would agree with that. So, um, we, one of our like listener question segments that we had a couple pods ago had been about style of play and, you know, whether Florida would have the capability now that Carrie Black Shears on board to play faster, uh, to play, I guess, a style that some people might, you know, argue is a little more attractive. And Eric and I have kind of talked ad nauseum about how you don't have to play fast to be really good. But I think Florida would. Certainly, like the ability to switch tempo, and we'll be able to do that more. But Eric, you just wrote a pretty uh, comprehensive piece exploring the data of how Florida played at Gator Country that everybody should check out. Can you kind of take us through some of uh, some of that piece?
2: Yeah, so I mean, it published uh, just like a second before the podcast uh, started. Before we recorded
0: on Friday, Uh, right?
2: So yeah, so uh, it is as fresh as this podcast that is uh, in your very ears, but. (laughs) Um, What I wanted to see essentially was like, did the amount of rest Florida had between games affect how they played? And um, I guess to spoil my article, yes, it did. Um, I would hope you still read it because I put a lot of work into it. But yeah, uh, read it, please. (laughs) But one thing, but but essentially I, I kind of categorized each game. Um, I put them into like, yeah, the days where Florida didn't have a rest between games like uh, like at the SEC tournament and at uh, at the Battle for Atlantis or one rest day in between or two rest days or three days um, or four days plus. So and I tried to see like, hey, was there a difference between um, between some of the things Florida did? So one thing I found was the fewer rest days Florida had, um, the less possessions they had. So that kind of means the more rest they had, the faster they were going to play. And the fewer days of rest they had, the slower they were going to play. And um, you can kind of see the numbers. I laid them out. I won't talk about them all now. I uh, would not be good podcast content, but it is <laughs> it is kind of an upward, like, you know, it's a clear kind of curve here. It was, it was very clearly that um, Interesting. they played, that, the more, that they put, the, the more rest they had, the faster they played. And then uh, that was in kind of terms of, of offensive possession numbers. So I even was thinking like, hey, let's look at actually the, um, uh, the amount of, uh, of transition opportunities. How much did they run out um, when they had zero rest, like um, a quick turnaround versus um, how, much, how many times did they run out when they had a lot of rest? So um, I will spoil these numbers, actually. Um, so when they had zero or one rest days, they averaged six transition uh, possessions per game. When they had two rest days, they averaged eight. When they had three rest days, they averaged ten. And when they had five or more rest days, they had 14. So every rest, so it it truly was, um, uh, there was a massive difference with every single rest day they had, they ran out, they ran in transition more. And I found that to be very interesting. And that's kind of why I wrote about it. But um, that was, was probably the most drastic was, you know, the difference between 14 and six transition opportunities um, is quite massive. And something I've talked about on this podcast, as well as my writing Um, Florida was 1.064 points per possession in transition, and they were 0.869 points per possession in half court. So, um, these shots that they get in transition are very high value. So the difference between them getting 10 or 14, um, transition opportunities versus six or eight is, is actually quite major. I would say it's, it's worth a few points just in the number of shots you get in transition. So yeah, that's kind of my uh, my long way of saying that, yeah, it actually uh, was very, very interesting to me when I looked at the data between uh, between rest days and how Florida played.
0: So let me ask you this, because I, I, you've crunched some of the data, and you might not have crunched the data like looking at this, but maybe it, it's just interesting to me. Like, is there – when Florida shortened its bench and flattened out its bench to, like, seven, basically, is there a rotation? Did you – I mean, did you did you see anything noticeable at the end of the season in terms of tempo, or or not really?
2: Yeah, well, it was a little bit tough to because uh, uh, kind of when they shortened the bench also correlated to just um, the tighter games, such Shorter as the rest, SEC yeah. tournaments. And, <laughs> um, uh, I'll, I'm also going to just give give one note. I also took uh, I also looked at um, Florida in rest advantage versus rest disadvantage opportunities. So, for example, if Florida played, um, say, Florida was playing. Um, Well, actually, this is a perfect example. Say that Florida was playing Kentucky on Saturday and say that Florida's last game, I'm sorry, the previous game was on a Wednesday and Kentucky's previous game was on a Tuesday. Um, That means that Kentucky had one more day of rest and therefore Kentucky had the rest advantage and Florida had the rest disadvantage. So Florida was winless in times where they had the rest disadvantage.
0: Including the loss to Georgia.
2: Yes, so... It, it just uh yeah, so it was kind of interesting to see and it also um they were three and three when they had the rest advantage so they weren't really taking advantage of other teams oh, wow. when they had the rest advantage and i would chalk that a bit up to the fact that they did play slow because i feel like if you play fast you're going to punish teams that are yeah um yeah that don't have the rest advantage um but yeah when florida didn't have the rest advantage and you know they kind of relied on full court pressing and playing up tempo defensively um, that, yeah, they, they went winless and uh, they were owned five. But my other note is they had a rest disadvantage in both games against Kentucky, which I thought was, uh, you know, in an sec schedule where they don't actually give many rest advantages. Usually teams have the same number of rest days between games Um, for Florida to have um, a rest disadvantage in both games against Kentucky. I thought was questionable, but (laughs) not a fan. That's super interesting.
0: Um, I mean, let me ask you this. You know <laughs> coaching, I mean because you 'cause you're you coach in a smaller school, I think you've said, yes, and, yeah, and so, like we don't have a big bench, like I mean, at one year we played eight, uh last year we had seven that we really could play, I and mean, we had like eleven guys on the team, but you know what I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> against anyone good, it was like eight or seven, so uh I think this year it'll probably be seven again, um we we would really like it to be eight. But did you notice anything in your coaching with that in terms of like how rest and the length of your bench affects, you know, how you can play?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's especially coaching high school basketball. I feel like they're not, uh, you know, division one athletes. um, There is definitely going to be a problem with that. I mean, the other thing too is I'll say, uh, I mean, I I know you guys in Florida are, are nuts and don't play with the shot clock. But, uh, you know, in Canada here, we play FIBA rules, and we play a 24-second clock, which means uh, the game's fast. So, in Canada,
0: we play so, by rules. Yeah,
2: we Yes, yeah, so in Canada, we play by, you know, internationally sanctioned rules. Uh, but uh, any, anyways, uh, so so that is a little bit of a difference, too. And, um, you know, you can't really take the air out of the ball and, and yeah. kind of rest offensively because, you know, the clock's running. But, um, yeah, I do think just uh, – Relative to uh, the short bench, I mean, you look at Florida, too, and just the fact that uh, once again, like if, if my team is getting, um, you know, uh, if Florida really wanted to turn teams over, but they only really played man defense. And and so when they wanted to turn teams over, they would crank up the pressure and trap out of it or they play full court um, for me, for example, um, if I want to rest my guys a little bit, but also kind of maybe generate some turnovers, I would go to a zone but Florida just didn't really institute a zone, which I think, you know, you and me have talked about this lots that was yeah. probably related to personnel in a lot of ways. Um, but kind of the way that we'd zone like to did, see it. Yeah. We, we def- we'd definitely love to see the zone. So um, I think that would be one thing that would be a way to kind of get the turnovers that the team really wants um, without having to play, um, you know, three quarter court, uh, 70 feet down the floor um, that, which, you know, I, which isn't to say I don't think the team should do that because they had a lot of success doing that. Um, I just think it's tough when you, um, you know, when they were down to, you know, a seven-man rotation to just crank up that pressure all the time. Like, it kind of makes sense why Florida wasn't running out when they got the basketball or uh, or looking to kind of push the ball.
0: Yeah, and when you're not playing a guy that's like 6'4 with long arms like Michael Caru for various reasons, it's even more hard, right? Like, yeah. you're relying on a on Kayvon Allen and We've talked about that stuff <laughs> ad nauseum, but certainly Florida will full will, will have some some flexibility and versatility. Another thing they'll have to deal with, speaking of rules, is uh they haven't banned the shot clock, don't worry anybody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um that would be wild to watch like Kentucky play with no shot clock. Uh <laughs> um, but but anyway, uh any, let me just ask it this way: People are going to talk about the three-point line. Um, is that the biggest one to you, or is there a rule change that you're like, "Oh, that's going to be super interesting"?
2: Yeah, I definitely think it's a three-point line. Just um, yeah, kind of too. with the with the prominent. Yeah, I didn't expect <laughs> you to be any different, but um, <laughs> I, I I mean, I do think it's kind of interesting the coach being able to call a, a live ball timeout later. But I do, I think that you know the way that they the players kind of half call it while the coach half calls it even with the prior rule um, I, I don't think that'll be a huge difference but <laughs> yeah so the three-point shot um you know so I'll throw back I mean I wrote about this months ago it feels like probably when the rule changes happened just about how I thought that's um that Florida it'll kind of affect Florida um because Florida was really good at defending the three-point line last year so it kind of stands to say like you know if they were good at defending the three-point line when it was closer like it's probably gonna be you know, they're probably gonna defend it even better afterwards. And then I looked at um uh like, this is a long time ago. I spent probably more time on this article than I ever did because um what happened, and I know this is getting much longer than the answer you wanted, Neil, but uh, No, this is this good. is <laughs> this is where uh, I have a follow-up already, so we're good. Oh, perfect. So I mean uh so for those some of you maybe read it, um but uh, what i did was essentially i could not find consistent data between the the sites i use for shot distance as to what florida shot from like from the new distance three um so essentially i just decided i was going to watch every single florida three-point attempt and and <laughs> chart them myself and uh and decide myself what i thought they would do with uh with the new three-point line and uh essentially what i saw was that um Florida shot pretty well. Like Noah Locke actually shot better on his deeper threes. Um, uh, Kayvon Allen shot a little bit better on, on his uh, like the further threes. And um, what I kind of gathered as well is that uh, when you get the further three point line, you're going to get more catch and shoot looks because guys aren't going to shoot off the dribble as much from out there and shooting off the dribble are lower percentage shots. So I think what's going to happen is the further three point line is going to take away the bad shots. Like, Jalen Hudson wouldn't be taking as many dribble three points. Well, I, I would hope he wouldn't. He probably maybe still would have, but um, you know, less of those shots, but uh, and instead a lot more catch and shoot. But um, I think that's uh, you know, the way to flex Florida, um, Noah Lock can shoot from that distance. I think Trey Mann can shoot from that distance. Andrew Nemhart struggled a little bit from that distance, so that'll be interesting to watch. Um, but I think it's going to take Florida's a dribble, like three point attempts off the dribble. I I think those are going to go down. And then um, defensively, um, it'll be kind of interesting to see if Florida continues to really pressure on the perimeter because that's what they did a lot these past few years was really pressure the perimeter. But if they want to continue to do that, it might be another step out further than it was last year. So it might open up the paint a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to see if they decide to do that or uh, challenge teams to make threes.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing for me is ball pressure and how much more are bad closeouts punished. Right. Right. Because there's just basketball is a game about space in a lot of ways. And if it's further out, then if your closeout is bad, there's more space to exploit the badness of the closeout. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, it, if you ever watch Florida play and they like mic up Coach White, I love those segments, like when they actually say things. It doesn't have to be Coach White. Like I like them just period. But it's always interesting to see, like, the great defensive programs, which I would include Florida under Coach White in that category based on just analytics. Um, you know, that, that like, communicate, communicate, communicate. And, like, so much of defense is positional, but, like, so much of it is communication, right, Eric? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the farther out it goes, like, just becomes such an even bigger deal. Because especially if you play like Florida does, if you're going to continue to pressure with it being a little bit more out like that communication, like it doesn't have to, is it a help side communication? Is it, is it a closeout communicate? You know what I mean? So like that kind of stuff is, is really vital. And with a younger team that's still trying to gel, it'll be interesting to see how that impacts Florida early defensively.
2: Well, if we want to get real into a little nerdier <laughs> basketball and some coach speak, one thing that I think is going to be interesting. Um, and this goes back to a discussion you and me had Um, A little while ago about a game winner that didn't go in Florida's favor that they lost on um, where we were discussing um, helping one pass away, um, where you were saying that, you know, that your team that you coach, um, you're a little bit, you play the pack line a little bit more where you, uh, you get some of that gap support from one pass away. And, right. um, you know, when I play a little bit more of the, you know, you deny pass one away and, um, your health comes from the weak side. So it'll be interesting to see if everyone is out a little bit further, um, the space between players and defenders is going to be further, which means that you have less of that gap support from one pass away. Yeah. And that's going to be really interesting to see how, how teams adapt to that, whether they, um, exaggerate the pack line, play a little bit more in the gaps because, um, because they're going to need to get that gap support. Um, or if they say, Hey, we are going to, um, continue to kind of pressure the same way. And because there won't be as much gap support, we're going to, um, trust help side from, uh, from the weak side of the floor. So, um, hopefully I didn't lose some of you there. I think a lot of, you know, what we're talking about and really appreciate it, but, um, that will be something that's maybe a little more like coachy and strategic that I'm interested to see what they do.
0: Yeah. We're at like minute, like 50, whatever. Once we get to like minute 50, <laughs> I trust that it's like the diehards that understand what we're talking about. So. Yeah, that I actually like. Really pumped to like watch, like an early Virginia game or an early Texas Tech game. In addition to Florida games, it's going to be
2: really fascinating. Yeah, those. That's that's a great point because that's yeah, perfect example of a pack line team and uh, kind of a team that's going to limit ball reversal. So yeah, those will be ones to be interesting to watch. But um, yeah, and obviously how Florida does uh, that'll be interesting too. And also this also even goes back to you and me saying we'd like to see more zone, something we were saying even before the three-point line changed. But now that the three-point line is is further out and it'll be a little bit tougher to punish zones, I wonder if just, like, more teams overall play zone and, uh, obviously, if, if Florida decides to play more.
0: Yeah, no, uh, to be determined. So, everybody, enjoyed the beginning of football practice. Next show will be Rob Duster, NBC Sports. You know, be good to have him on. We're going to kind of shift gears and go, like, Bird's eye view national pitcher. Uh He's going to talk about Florida because they're a top 10 team. So, you know, that'll be fun too. But um, everybody, and thanks for listening, especially uh, thanks to Will for, for joining us. Bye-bye.